Welcome to Oaken Bros. This is Eric. And I'm Michael. And today we have a very, very special and important guest. Uh, we have Jonathan Dector. He is the COO and president of Voltage Pictures. And he has he's the executive producer of the blockbuster comedy, I Feel Pretty, starring Amy Schumer, and Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, starring Zac Efron. Which, which I would love to start there. Well, hold on. Hold on. I'm not done because yet. That I'm, was not done. Like, okay, I'm not done. I'm not done. And he also executive produced Wind River, After, and Colossal with Anne Hathaway, which I must say was an amazing... Like Honestly, like there hasn't been a movie that you produced that we have not liked. So, so oh, you haven't seen enough of them. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff at Voltage particularly has been mm -hmm. unbelievable. And I, I want to start out with, I, I don't even want to say its name, the Zac Efron movie, the Ted Bundy Zac Efron movie. Um, go ahead, Eric, because I like, yeah, I, have I to mean, jump you know, this. we, I, I, I watched it and um, it was, it was chilling. And it, it was amazingly chilling that like you didn't show anything. And it right. was just him on the other side of, it made like, me think that Ted Bundy was like, not like was there a debate on how that story was going to be told? Like, was you know? Oh, from the beginning, uh, when we read the script, uh, it got sent to us without us knowing it was about Ted Bundy. And in the script, it never says Ted Bundy. He's just right. a guy called Ted. Wow. Uh, and as you read it, you read it, you read it. In the end, you know, you figure out that it's Ted Bundy at a certain point, but you know, the whole rub of the movie was the way Joe Berlinger, our brilliant director, shot it and crafted it. Uh, and Michael Worry, the writer, wrote it. It was meant to make you genuinely question whether or not yes. this was Ted Bundy. Right. And, you know, had this movie been made 20 years ago before the Internet, it could have been a crying game-esque reveal at the very, very end on that right. much, much debated scene where you see him swinging a uh, hammer and actually killing a girl. Right. Um, but given it's, you know, movie came out in 2017 or 2018, you know, there are no secrets anymore and you can't hide something like that from the audience. But, you know, Truthfully, it was an amazing team effort. You know, the producers on the movie, Michael Costigan and Ari Kishishian, uh, did a great job. Uh, my partner, Nicholas Chardier, also produced it. Uh, and, you know, the majority of the credit still goes to Joe, the director, and Zach for delivering an amazing performance. So, like, in that in, in that situation, like, when you get that script, was it a no-brainer? Was there a five-year delay of making the movie? Or was it just like, this is good. We're going to go with this. Like how long from like, from when you received it, like what, what's the, what's the history with that script? We got that script on May 1st. Uh, I finalized the deal uh, probably May 5th in the oh, car on God. the way to the airport to go to Cannes to start selling it two days later. Right. Wow. Uh, so when something is good, when something's, oh, when something's good, good, it's good, just, we we go. Uh, and we are fortunate enough to be in a position where we can say we're going, you know, and we've got the financing to back it up and partners that we can work with. Uh, you know, so for us, the math was pretty simple, you know, a modest budget movie with Zach Efron about a serial killer with a director who's won an Academy Award. You know, so was Zach Efron always attached to it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could, couldn't imagine anybody else. Does that sell a movie quicker if a script comes to your desk and says Zach Efron wants to make this movie? Does that? Oh, absolutely. It sells it quicker. 
Right. Well, there are three things that help sell a script, or actually four. Uh, the script itself, the cast, the director, and whether or not you've got a predetermined U.S. partner on it. Most movies don't have a predetermined U.S. partner on it, or most independent films don't. Uh, so the trick is really finding a script that people like with a director that you know people trust and cast that works. Mm -hmm. Have you always known that you were going to be doing this since you were a young guy? I mean, like what you're doing is, is honestly, it's been my dream since I'm five years since I've seen Goonies, right? Since I've seen Goonies. <laughs> Really and truly, this is bit. This is the dream of what I've always wanted to do. What you're doing, have you take us all the way back, Jonathan? Take us to the beginning, and like, how did you get into film? Well, uh, I went to college at uh, the University of Arizona. I grew up outside of Philadelphia and wanted to get the heck out of the city and away from the snow and the cold. And where in Philly? Uh, where in uh, Newtown Square? Okay, Delaware right. County. Yeah, I, I didn't peg you for somebody that was born and raised in L.A. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah no, totally. I, like, I just, I, like, you, I can smell the East Coast off of, you know, yes, coming, coming from you. Yeah. So I went to college and, you know, wanted to be a business major, but I was a terrible student and couldn't get past whatever the first math class it was you needed to uh, do to get into business school. And, I, you know, and one of my friends said, why don't you do media arts? And I said, what's media arts? He said, it's basically film and television. I was like, all right, that sounds fun. Right. Uh, so went through college and, you know, you know. Did a little more than muddled my way through. Uh, wound up doing okay in the uh, stuff in media arts, and then when it came time to graduate, you know, I thought I wanted to be a producer. I didn't really know what it meant, uh, so I packed I up my stuff, got in a U-Haul, drove out to LA, you know, rented an apartment, uh, and would literally send out fax resumes out because back then you faxed resumes right off of my you know brother word processor and you know right. my four-year-old fax machine that had a line in it what year was this what year this was, was 96 very nice uh, and i'd walk down to the corner and if the hollywood reporter of variety had five job ads or more i would buy them and if not i would go with my pen and paper and write down what the jobs were mm -hmm. and walk back because back then five dollars a day on trades that was you know that was a meal. Right. Um, and I spent the summer banging resumes out, uh, wound up getting a job at a company called Crossroads Five Entertainment, which was a bankruptcy reorganization slash entertainment company. Mm -hmm. uh, started off as the assistant to uh, one of the partners who was the COO and she was an attorney. Uh, nice woman. Her name was Ann Jacobus. And, you know, looked down the hall and within three months realized I didn't want to go to law school. Right. I was never, I was never a student. Uh, right. And it just so happened that the assistant who worked for the vice president uh, and the vice president had the cool job in the company. Mm -hmm. She was the one who brought in the money uh, by licensing the film libraries and got to do sort of the special cool projects. So that girl had left and I raised my hand and said, oh, $50 a week pay raise and, you know, a cooler job, sign me up. Right. Uh, so that all, that was, let's see, I started in August. So that was probably November or December, maybe January of 
97. Uh, then came the AFM, which used to be in February, the American film market. And I walked in as the assistant, you know, as you know, my boss's assistant. I had no idea what to expect. And I walked into the Lowe's and saw millions and millions of dollars getting transacted on all of these weird and goofy movies next to, you know, big companies like New Line and Miramax and thought, I'm home. You know, right. Here's a place where someone who does not have an MBA can go do international business and play with movies. You know, right. it, it was, you know, other than, you know, finding a job in sports, uh, which, you know, everyone grew up, you know, which I grew up loving, you know, um, this was the greatest thing in the world. Cause you know, movies have always been, you know, I've always loved movies. You know, I don't know anybody who, who hasn't, uh, and having, you know, studied film in school, uh, getting deep, a deeper understanding of what a good movie was. This was just, I just felt like I was home. Uh, so you, obviously on, I want to hear like, more of the story. I want to hear, right, there's right. a lot more. There's a lot more to get to, to voltage at this point. Well, I, I just, wanna, yeah, I want to, I want to ask like, you know, obviously you paid your dues, right? And you know, like you, you started from the bottom. When did you, when did you have your first big break? Uh, I'll get that in a sec. Uh, so basically the flash forward is that was in February, uh, and my boss was pregnant at the time. So she left to go have her baby in either late May or early June. Uh, and I just started doing the stuff that came in. Um, uh, and a month after that, the CEO, a wonderful guy named John Hyde, who I'm still very much in touch to this day. He's, you know, basically my Hollywood dad, uh, said, you got this all under control, kid? And I said, no problem, boss. I had no idea what the <laughs> hell I was doing. I, 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 I made every mistake you could make. I, you know, I, 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 you know, but I figured it out. Right. Uh, uh, so I did, you know, so eventually, you know, they said, all right, well, that's your job now. Uh, you know, gave me a little pay bump. And, you know, during that time, we had sold the Canon Pictures Film Library for a couple of million dollars, which was a really big deal. We sold it at bankruptcy auction. And, you know, I started to sort of find my footing with licensing library product. Um and from there, you know, worked my butt off for another couple of years until I finally got to the point where the business itself, Crossroad, pivoted. Uh, at the same time, the company owned a comic book company and a record label. And I was sort of the international guy or the licensing guy on all of it. And uh, the film libraries had sort of, you know, we had licensed most of them out. Uh, the comic book company sort of disappeared. And then it was, do you want to go be the international music guy? And that wasn't particularly exciting to me. Right. Uh, so my boss owned a few movies, uh, Short Circuit and Flight of the Navigator. Oh, which, my God. Uh, Short Circuit. That was our movie in the 80s. Me too. It's one of the first movies I remember going to a theater and seeing. We saw right. that. Our mom took us to the premiere of that. We were friends with the heads of TriStar, right? That was a TriStar movie? Yep. Yeah. That's and we went to the premiere of that. I remember meeting Steve Guttenberg and Fisher Stevens and Ali Sheedy and Ali Sheedy was in yep. that too. Oh my God. That is yeah, that, so that, that movie defines 
like that's our huge you right are. there. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, Johnny Five is definitely still alive. Yes. 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 Talk about a reboot, you know? Maybe. Uh, I'll, I'll, we can talk about that later, and I'll give you a little <laughs> bit of insight on that. Uh, so, you know, John said to me, you know, I, I went and had the, the conversation with him said, look, I really don't want to do this. I'm 24 years old. I want to go kill it in the film world. You know, and he said, all right, well, here's what you do. You know, take these couple movies I own, go build yourself a sales agency. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, from 96 until much, much later, uh, I sold those two movies, Short Circuit and Flight of the Navigator. Commissions paid the down payment on my first house. Amazing. Uh, so from there I went, you know, I was 24 years old, didn't understand a thing about cash flow and what it actually took to run a business. Uh, said, all right, you know what? I can do this. Uh, so I opened up shop in my living room. Uh, nine months later, I was tens of thousands of dollars in debt, having burnt through every dollar I had ever saved and sort of had that, oh shit moment. You know, right. I need to start parking my car uh, in other places. Cause I was scared the guy was going to come take it away. Right. Uh, and, uh, I got a job at the Hollywood reporter selling ads, mm -hmm. uh, in the independent film sector. Uh, within two days of being there, I was, you know, there were great people around and it was a good experience, but it wasn't the game that I wanted to hunt, mm -hmm. you know, running around doing $2,000 deals or $5,000 deals wasn't, nearly as exciting as you know licensing films and being you know part of the action as much as being you know right. a service provider right so within the first week i wrote a list out of five companies and said within a year i'm going to go, go work at one of these places selling movies <clears throat> the list was new line miramax morgan creek franchise and i forget who the fifth one was uh, so I probably devoted a little more time and effort to those clients than I should have. Mm -hmm. uh, and within nine months, uh, I got a job at Morgan Creek as a vice president of sales with James Robinson, James G. Robinson. So what is, as vice president of sales, what does that mean? Hold on. What'd you say? What'd you say? John? Uh, and there began my relationship with BLS. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, I, I think up until, you know, what are we 20, 20 years strong now? We're 20 yeah. years strong. Unbelievable. So that's a testament to our company, Eric. A testament to mom and dad's company. No question about it. And I mean, up until, I don't know, three, four years ago, I, I think I still had Morgan Creek listed as my uh, company because yes, they had did. great yes, rates. Did. <laughs> yep. And Mr. Robinson still has that account, you know, yep. slash Morgan Creek. And then uh, you guys had to deal with Warner Brothers, I believe, right? That was exactly. Important. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I didn't research, I didn't research this, by the way, this is all, this is, you know, like I remember that from the system. That's so funny. That, that is, uh, you know, so there I walked in the doors and when I got that job and I looked on the walls and I saw major league young guns, you know, uh, yep. Epic. Epic. Last Epic. of the yep. Mohicans, true romance, Ace Ventura. And I was, it Those was our movies. Like, oh my God. Um, Oh my I get God. to play with these toys. Yes. Yes. I, I was a kid in the candy store. I believe it. I was 25 years old, you know, with an office in the Warner brothers lot, you know, 
grinding away, doing yeah. millions of dollars of business a year. You know, people were calling me. I wasn't hustling to call them. I thought, wow, this is, I like this. This is cool. Yeah. You know, so when I was at Morgan Creek, we made some great films. Uh, we made The Good Shepherd, which was a million-dollar movie that De Niro directed with Matt Damon and Angelina Jolie. It was one of the biggest independent movies uh, that was ever made at the time. We did the premiere. I remember. I'm sure. I, I, I worked that premiere in college. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget. I was, you know, like, come on, we need you. De Niro's premiere tonight. I, That's I, funny. Put on my yeah. suit. Yep. Yeah, so we made that movie. We made uh, Exorcist: The Beginning uh, yep. with Rennie Harlan, who I'm still in touch with. Uh, Are you really? Like, oh yeah. my god! Uh, we did. I, I um, saw him. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Rennie Harlan's been a client of ours for thirty plus years. Yeah, Rennie's great. Great guy. Uh, we did a movie called American Outlaws, which was one of my favorite, you know, underrated movies of all time with Colin Farrell and Scott Kahn. It was the Jesse James story, you know, which, you know, I remember the debate internally on whether we called it Young Guns 3 or not. And Amazing. I love that movie. That Young was Guns? Like, that, I think, what year was that? That it was, like was 89, I think, or 91. No, it was like that. Was no, American Outlaws was nine. It was 2001. 2001 yeah yeah it's just that time period yeah, yeah well, that's, yeah that was your youth eric i mean that's yeah. when you were growing up that was yeah. I, I was i was 18 and the last one that i remember fondly was we made a movie called two for the money with matthew My, mcconaughey and al uh, pacino yes uh the dj caruso directed about a uh a sports talent yep. which you know, that was, you know, again, that was a great script. You know, love that movie. Uh, so, you know, I spent five years, you know, learning and busting my butt working for uh, Jim and, you know, grew to be very close with his sons, Brian and David, who I'm sure you guys know uh, oh, both yeah. very well. Yep. Uh, and from there, I I'd sort of hit my ceiling at that point uh, because, you know, what we did at Morgan Creek was we made – big studio level movies and we had a catalog and that was the business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there is a whole world and especially in 2005 when DVD was booming, mm -hmm. there's a whole world of different independent cinema, foreign language movies that, you know, as a 30 year old, I wanted to learn and experience. So I left and went to an independent company called Arclight. Uh, mm -hmm where we delivered movies like Lord of War. Uh, great movie. Nick Cage. Yep. That yeah. opening shot, I still think about that opening shot. When I write, when I when I write, that yeah. shot of the bullet traveling from production into the guy's, it was the body of the head, but I remember the bullet went through him. Yep. That, like that was, that was incredible. It was one shot following one bullet. I remember, I remember seeing that in a rough cut when the effects weren't finished, thinking, what the hell am I looking at? Oh, my God. It, it's still it, – I mean, that movie's 20 years old now. That movie yeah. still has an impact on the way I write. Uh, you know? It's amazing. It and, really is. I mean, it's a great cast. Uh, you yeah. know, the director was great and everything about it. You know, that was a big independent movie. Right. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, we were in the Hong Kong cinema business. Uh, so – I sold early Donnie Yen movies, oh, wow. you know, some mid, some middle Jackie Chan movies, uh, and the company was Australian based. So I learned 
that industry as well a bit. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, after two years there, uh, you know, I got a little bit itchy and wound up uh, going over to Lakeshore Entertainment uh, and working for Tom Rosenberg, uh, which was sort of like a Morgan Creek 2.0 for me. Right. Because, uh, you know, they had made Underworld. Right. Unbelievable films. My Best Friend's Wedding. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or not my best friend, Runaway Bride. Runaway Bride, uh, right. Right. You know, and they owned a very, very deep catalog of great movies that we all grew up with in the 80s. Uh, and we made some really, some really interesting, fun films there. You know, we made uh, a reboot of Fame, which was, pro you know, it was the first time in my career where we had over collateralized a movie out of foreign mm -hmm. and then some. Uh, which what that means is we had sold more than what the budget was. Mm -hmm. out of foreign distribution, uh, which, you know, that was sort of unheard of at that point. Uh, but the brand, uh, just a testament to the power of the brand. Mm -hmm. It was a first time director. Uh, and, you know, that that was an incredibly interesting experience as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and from there, you know, again, three years later, uh, so this is 2010, where we had gone through 2008, which was the only thing that is even close to as bad as it is today. Mm -hmm. When the when the world economy crashed, DVD crashed at the same time, and then there was a writer strike, which basically shut the business down for six months. That, that was, was yeah. That was behind COVID nineteen, behind right. COVID. That yeah. writer strike that decimated us. Oh, it, decimated it our business. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, in the very beginning of COVID, I just kept saying, starting to feel like 2008 again. 100%. 100%. And, and we always said when people go, oh, how did the, the Great Recession affect you guys? And we always told people not to brag, but the Great Recession didn't affect us. They were still making because movies. We, yeah, we cut so much when the writer strike happened, but that by the time the recession right. rolled out, we were already so lean. But that so writer we, strike, we were ready yeah. for the writer strike. I mean, COVID, you know, that's this is you know the this, end of the world. So this is like, a whole different level, right? Yeah, of, of baloney. But please continue. This is I can listen to you for the next five hours of like how you <laughs> the movies that you worked on and and who you know. Which, like, like this is like I, I have so many, I have so many questions. Like you know, the movies that you made are like define generations, and like is that possible to make those movies today like that? You know, because like today with the tentpole movies where they're always um, big budget and those are the ones that are really going to see, is there room for those types of classics out? Is it like, did, did Netflix help with that? Because it, it gives it a, a place for people to watch it. Well, let, let me go back and first say that, you know, no single person ever makes a movie alone. There are, right. you know, it is the ultimate team effort, uh, you know. I have been fortunate enough to have a small hand in some and a slightly bigger hand in others. But, you know, as you know, my role today as an executive producer, you know, there are, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people who are far more important to the actual movie and the production and the creative side, uh, if not hundreds uh, or even thousands than I am. Uh, you know, but you know, I guess the answer to that is, or, you know, you never know what's going to pin into the zeitgeist uh, and make those movies. But I think that with our movie after uh, that we've got after number two coming out 
this fall worldwide. I think that's a movie that has hit, you know, hit into that cultural zeitgeist because it was based on a series of books that Anna Todd wrote that have been read over a billion times across the world. Right. Uh, and I'm not sure if you've seen it or not, but it's, you know, it's Romeo and Juliet. It's, I mean, it's really a, a love story about a girl who goes to college for the first time and meets the bad boy and uh, they fall in love. I want to I want to go back to what you were saying before, but I want to take I want to talk about your journey more. But what you just said, um, and I've heard this a million times, give me the same thing, but make it different. Give, <laughs> give me Romeo and Juliet, but make it different. Uh, give me Ghost, but make it different. Is does that hold up as an executive producer that's reading scripts? That's, you know, you're the gate gatekeepers to to create someone's career. Is that terminology still relevant? Sure. Well, I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, what we all learned in seventh grade uh, English class. There are only seven stories. A hundred percent. Yes. So yes. everything is just a take on something else. Uh, now, that's Save Brent, the Cat. That's Save the Cat 101. I don't know if you've ever read Save the Cat. I'm sure you have. No? Um, I. It's a screenwriting book. Yeah. It's a screenwriting book and it, and it goes on Joseph Campbell's uh, the hero with a thousand faces that talks about the themes of movies. There's really only seven stories told in the world and you have to choose that movie and then beat out that film. And, yep. you know, but give me the same thing, but make it different. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that has evolved a bit, you know, in, in the day and age where there are genre bending movies. Yes. Uh, uh, Tarantino doesn't ascribe to give me the same thing, but make it different. Stanley Kubrick yeah. didn't, didn't say, give me the same thing, but make it different. Well, I mean, there the, are some people that are truly exceptional. Yes. At, at, you know, at what but they even, do. But even with Tarantino, who I love, I mean, you see where he draws inspiration in every movie, whether yes, it's Kurosawa or it's, you know, 100%. Scorsese or. You can't see it, but you can't see it, but he's on my wall. <laughs> he's on my wall. He's my hero. As a writer, as a writer, Tarantino is my absolute hero. Hmm. You know. He's my hero. Have you, have you ever had a chance to actually read one of his scripts? I've read them all. It, I read them it, all. They're, they're novels. They're novels. Yeah. He adapts a novel into a screenplay, and and I do the I do the opposite. I write the script first, and then I turn my script into a novel. But he's adapting his screenplay like a novel into film. I haven't read Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I can't find that script anywhere. I haven't. I haven't read that one. But I, you know, I'll never Bastard. forget when I read. Uh, it was either Inglorious or Django. Yep. But it was the first time I had ever read a script that he wrote. And there were cross outs and handwritten notes and misspellings. And I'm thinking, this is the greatest writer of all time. Yes. And this is his process. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. 100%. Right? He, he, he does it long form. He doesn't type his scripts. He does everything. He writes it out. I read um, uh, Death Proof. Mm -hmm. one of, I mean, one of the coolest movies ever. And for him, for that to put from his mind to the pen to the paper, a chase scene, like a 35-minute chase scene at the end, uh, you just see genius working. I, I could talk yeah. about Tarantino for hours. But <laughs> you, so you you went, I forgot where we were even at with your journey, but you weren't at Voltage yet. No. We didn't, we didn't uh, get to Voltage. No, there's one more stop, and then I get the Voltage. So in 2010, uh, I got a call from a guy named Stuart Ford who ran a company called I Am Global. I Am Global had recently uh, got acquired by Reliance Entertainment, which was a huge Indian conglomerate. 
Right. At the time, they were making a pretty big play in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, they, they bought DreamWorks, right? Yeah, they, they bought yeah. DreamWorks. They did Lincoln. Uh, yep. They yeah. did talent deals, you know, million dollar year overheads with sort of the top 20 guys uh, creatively in town. And they bought this little independent sales company uh, with the idea of, all right, we're going to be in the studio business. We're in the talent business. Let's be in the independent film business. Uh, so he called and, you know, offered me a great opportunity to go further expand what I was doing. And it was, you know, it was a no brainer for me at the time because mm -hmm. uh, I got to play with bigger and different toys. That's not the BLS car that's waiting outside, no. right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a few hours early. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and, you know, over five years, I, I don't remember the amount of movies we made, but I think we turned over seven or $800 million in, uh, in business. We worked on all of Jason Blum's movies. Uh, we wow. built out his quarantine at the time. Oh Talking about God. a prolific filmmaker. Oh, he's, he's off the charts. There <laughs> is nobody in the world like Jason. 100%. You know? hundred percent. You know, we were lucky enough. We did, you know, paranormal activity came before I got there and then we did insidious. We you did, did the purge. Sinister. You did the purge. Uh, no, the, by the time the purge came, uh, Jason had made his deal with universal and, right. you know, started moving his movies into the studio system. But, you know, we had a good three or four year run where we were just killing it with these movies. Oh, $5 million movie then generating a hundred million dollars in revenue. It's like, yeah. it's like going to a craps table and never crapping out. Exactly. You know? I, I mean, and the beauty of it for us is these movies all worked great overseas and they weren't hugely expensive. So we could deliver them to our clients at moderate prices. Right. Um, you know, and everyone, you know, everyone was making a killing. Right. That's the beauty of those, those scary type movies. Ah, oh, there's no question. Horror, right. it's horror, it's monster in the house. And and if you ever read Save the Cat, it's the Bible for all screenwriters except Tarantino. Um, <laughs> that monster in the house, you need three things. You need a monster, you need a house, and you need a sin. And Spielberg did that with Jaws. He had the monster. Uh, the sin was not opening the beaches, kind of like being today. greedy, being greedy, being greedy yeah. right? The sin of greed yeah. by opening the beaches during July Fourth weekend, and um, the house, which was Amity, and that you could, they, nobody could leave. They couldn't escape. So that's like a quintessential. Monster in the House movie and like Blumhouse does that, right? Yeah. Like Blumhouse has those three things. The most literal, the most literal movie like that, and I don't know who made this movie, but it's Quarantine. That's the most literal Monster yes. in the House movie that I think has ever been made. Where they're they're stuck in, they are quarantined inside, and they cannot leave. And there is a monster in that There's building. Like zombie vampires chasing them or some shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we had a great, great run. Uh, at I am global and you know, over the years, uh, my partner now, Nicholas Chardier, he actually, he and I go back forever. We're the same age. Uh, we started in the business at the same 20, time. 26, 26, 27. <laughs> Just try, come on. Uh, 46, 46. All right. Yeah, you got, I'm okay with it. Jonathan, you got four years on me, man. I, I turned 42 in May. So May yeah. what? May 26th. I'm May 22nd. So no, you're four not. years and four days. Yep. All right, man. I knew you guys would be connected. Those Gemini. Listen, I gotta tell you, Jonathan. They stick and I, together. We've had a relationship now for a few years. Where he would call me on his, my cell phone, ask me questions, and everything, and I always yep. asked him for writing advice. It was just, you know, it, we clicked, uh, and yep. just 
to be on this podcast. I'm not surprised. Oh, it's, you're Gemini, right? May 22nd's Gemini. Yeah. Yeah. First day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're going to make a movie at some point together. Absolutely. Okay. Very well, maybe Poker Geist, which, you know, half the team read and everybody had a great time with it. So it's on my Kindle for the weekend. Wow. Oh, my God. That's incredible. This was the, that's the thing that I wanted to hear for the last 42 years of my life. That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Um, for anyone interested, Michael wrote a Michael wrote a, a book and a screenplay called Poker Geist. Poker Poker Geist, and a, I don't want to spoil. I want Jonathan to read it because I'm I literally well, give, just give, give the long line. Well, give uh, long line. A, a, um, a novice poker player must get a degenerate gambling ghost off his back by winning the World Series of Poker. Um, I think I botched the log line, but I, I'm like, that's I pretty much it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. But, um, it won the grand, I'm not trying to sell it to you, Jonathan. Well, I kind of am, but like, <laughs> I'm not really selling it, but like <laughs> it won the grand jury prize at the New York screenwriting contest in New York. It has about 20 something awards. And, um, it's, it's literally, it was, it's the hangover meets ghost. You know, it is the quintessential, it's a Vegas movie and I'm a Vegas guy. You know, Vegas is my city and, um, and I'm a spiritual guy. And that's what the story of poker guys is. But I can't believe that, um, it got, you know, like the next yeah, level it made the rounds, it made yep. the rounds and you got good feedback. I'm, I'm hoping. great feedback. So I'm excited to read it this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we should do another Very podcast and he should announce live on the podcast. Michael, I'd like to, well, buy poker you know, guy. You, ne you never know. Well, I, you know, I actually think that, you know, if we get there, I'm going to make the deal with you on the podcast because you're not going to be able to say no to me. Uh, yeah, no, probably. I don't know if I should have my manager on the podcast at this point, but Absolutely I'm not. starting to sweat really badly right now. So let's go back to your chin. And I have a feeling that Eric will get on my side pretty quickly. hundred yeah, percent. No, the answer is yes. So it's <laughs> yeah, right. We want, is, give, okay. we want to give you a Snickers bar. Yes. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I have so, questions. I want to hear more about how you got there and let's remind me about pitch. manager. I want to, I want to hear about like, um, how do people get to you, right? You're, you're the gatekeeper. How do, how does, how do people get to you? I mean, I got to you through my manager, right? I have a manager. I have an entertainment attorney. They are the Illuminati. I call them the Illuminati because they're the ones pulling the strings behind the curtain that I, I have to like, you know, dance and do this and everything. For Cause them. like we're, we're self-starters, like everything we do, like when we were self-publishing books, like book every three months like like we we were quick about it and that's the way we run bls like you know we we like going quickly and then all of a sudden michael got signed i got published and, that, and then and then, they were, just, and then they were like i just did a podcast about this stop i was putting out three books a year i had about 40 screenplays in my closet give or take from college my college writing days and i started turn, turning them out into novels and you know started getting noticed and that's how i got the manager and that's how i got you know the the um uh the entertainment attorney the whole nine yards and I'm I'm rep by Susan Grode from Cat Moochin. Her son Josh is running Legendary. Yep. You you know them? I'm assuming. Yeah, I know Josh. Yeah, I remember Josh when he was an attorney. Really? Yeah. Yep. Um, like my our West Coast family. Like Susan is at my West Coast mom. I trust this woman with my life and my children. Um, and now I'm signed with John Levin, who you know. Of course. Who? Uh, yeah. Who apparently? Every, John apparently everyone knows this man, and like. I was rep by Paradigm and, you know, no offense to Paradigm. They were great people, lovely people, but, you know, I was kind of steered to go in the direction of John and John is like, like sitting with him is like Buddha, you know, yeah. it's like, what do I do now? Like, you know, he calls me young Padawan, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Luke. And he's like, you know, he's like Obi-Wan and I'm and Chewbacca. 
well, you're you're you're, you're like a porg, like a porg from the Last Jedi. You like those little things that fly, like you just shoot them away. I got this podcast. Yeah, you do it. Yeah. Well, when Jonathan signs me and I make it big, I mean, it's called it's going to be the Oaken Podcast instead of the Oaken Bro. No, I'm teasing. I'm never leaving. I'm never leaving. Anyway, how the hell did you start? Did you start Voltage with Nicholas? Or no, did- Nick started vo- uh, funny stories. So, you know, as I was saying, Nick and I had been friends forever. Right. You know, we sort of grew up in the business together and it happened to be, you know, when he left Arclight, that's what I joined. Okay. He left Arclight and went and started voltage the next day. Uh, how, literally. how did he do that? How do you, how do you do, how do you start an independent studio? Well, it didn't start off as a studio. It started off as a sales agent uh, where he would go and represent films. And Nick was fortunate enough uh, to develop a relationship with a guy named Dean Devlin. Who oh, my God. Special effects on a few movies. Independence Day, Dean Devlin. Yeah. Oh, my uh, God. Well, Dean had produced a uh, made-for-TV movie called The Librarian that Arclight sold, and Nick and he developed a relationship. And you know, at one point, Nick said, "I want to go do this," and Dean said, "I'll back you. We can partner." Uh, so that was 2005. Uh, you know, we started the company with nothing, and you know, I think he bought Dean out a year or two later. And the Voltage story is far far more interesting than mine uh i don't i don't know about that jonathan this is incredible this is incredible your story well i'll 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 dive into the voltage side a little bit and then uh it'll dovetail into you know me joining so in 2008 uh nick had you know one other employee he had three years of steam behind him uh so it was actually 2007 because the movie came out in 2008 and he went out and uh, the first thing, he, you know, he, he wanted to start producing movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first thing he did and the thing that we do here all the time is, all right, what great directors haven't been working lately for whatever reason? Uh, and Nick found his way to say, all right, you know, what's Catherine doing? Uh, calls up her, uh, Catherine Bigelow, that is, calls up her agent and says, what does she what does she want to do uh, and he gets a script called the hurt locker hurt locker oh my god first movie he ever produced the first movie it turns out to be the hurt locker and i am sure that most Talk about of light, it, lightning in a bottle well it, it's even more than that you know as you know most people you know, forget, but the Hurt Locker was released and it only did about $10 million in box office. It right, was released right. in the summer, uh, you know, got pretty good reviews, you know, but all anyone wanted to talk about that year was Avatar. Uh, yep. So then, 10 years uh, ago. But 11 years ago. Yeah. So then comes, you know, Golden Globes and Academy nomination times and all of a sudden Hurt Locker's in the race. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, David just kicked Goliath's ass Seriously. And up and down the board. Uh, and that vaulted Nick's, you know, business into the next stratosphere. Amazing. You know, from there, you know, he went on to finance Dallas Buyers Club. You know, so unbelievable. Had another taste of the Academy Awards. Unbelievable. Uh, Jared Leto's performance. I don't know. Like talking Matthew about Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. I mean, yes, but like a method actor like Leto, <laughs> where like he did you see that picture where he was stick thin, Eric? Yeah. Where he, like I he did. was sucking. 
unbelievable. And McConaughey did it too. And yeah, all I know. the while, and one of the things that drew me to Voltage was Nick continued to make Steven Seagal movie after Steven Seagal movie after Steven Seagal movie, paying bills, paying bills, paying bills. <laughs> <clears throat> he he. We like to say around here that you know Stephen Scott built this house more than anybody else. Steamroller wow. Productions, Steamroller Films. I think was Steven Seagal's shingle, and yep. he was a client for many years. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so all of that. You know, so Nick continues to be incredibly successful navigating the waters. Uh, you know, and this sort of leads us up to 2015, where you know he said. Oh, I want to grow again. I want to grow further. Uh, you want to come over and partner with me? And I thought, yeah, this would be fun. You know, <laughs> yes, same yes. age, you know, you've got, you know, this amazing credibility. You've built an amazing business. You know, you, you want to go start trying to, you know, take over the world. I'm in. Love it. Uh, so that was 2015. And, you know, here we are. I don't know, some 300 million in box office later, having, you know, put another 20 or 30 productions into the ecosystem. You know, some of those great movies that you've named, whether it's I Feel Pretty or Wind River, where we had a big hand, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, the After Series, Colossal. You know, so we've done uh, a lot of stuff that we're incredibly proud of. How did I Feel Pretty come across? I mean, Amy Schumer was like that was the BL that was the BLS car. <laughs> your car's outside, sir. Well, do you want to No, that that was your Aunt Marilyn yelling at me because oh I'm my God. <laughs> Jonathan, why aren't you paying the fucking bills, Jonathan? <laughs> She's never asked me that. She said, why don't you call me first? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Marilyn when there's a problem. Marilyn is our mom, our mom who started the company with our father. It's my mom's little brother, his ex-wife. Yeah. And we, we got her we got her in the divorce. We got Marilyn in the divorce. You won. She's the best. She is the best. She's and she's gonna flip out when she hears this podcast. I will tell <laughs> you that much. She goes, Jonathan, she Jonathan loves nothing loves more. Yeah. She loves nothing more than when people talk about her. Yeah. Nothing nothing <laughs> yes. more. Especially that, yes. Yeah. She he knows me. That, he knows that's me. like that's her thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, the fact that you spoke about Aunt Marilyn, who's our senior VP of uh, global accounts at BLS is uh this is going to go. She's a character of herself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no question about it. Yeah. 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 If yeah. you need a certain character in Poker Guys, you know, Marilyn That's would it. be. Yeah. She's been a lot of inspiration for my writings. But anyway. <laughs> so uh, here's the story with I Feel Pretty. So yes. we read the script uh, and we go into our script meeting. How did you get it? Like, was that submitted to you? What did you find it off the street? Uh, a producer who worked here, a woman named Alyssa Phillips, uh, you know, whose job it is was to run around and find scripts and make movies, got it from Sony International, who was going to make it but decided not to. Uh, and there were producers on the movie already, Wonderland Films, which is McGee and Mary Viola, who we had done some business with. Right. And we we read the script, you know, and again, this is sometime in March, uh, came in on Monday morning and we, you know, we all talked about it and somebody, and I don't remember who said we got to go to Amy Schumer with this. Wow. Uh, oh, so she wasn't attached to it. No, she wasn't attached. Uh, so Nicholas and I, and one of our colleagues, Dominic, uh, got in the car, drove over to UTA, 
uh, sat in a room, you know, with her agents and uh, literally made it, you know, didn't leave until we made a deal. You know, it was one of those very old school Hollywood moments, which, you know, play, you know, was not only an effective way to do it, but it plays good this story. Uh, and, you know, we went off the can two weeks later and, you know, we struck gold. Uh, yep. STX came in and bought the U.S. and the U.K. for a big number. We had an incredible response from our foreign partners and sold the movie out in four days or five days, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Went and shot in Boston uh, late summer, early fall. And by March or April, I forget when it was released, we were in theaters and... You know, the movie did $99, $99 million worldwide box office. It's incredible. It was one of the few comedies, and this is a true credit to our foreign partners, where foreign outperformed domestic. Wow. wow. You know, and that's not to say that the domestic guys didn't do a great job. It just, you know, the movie just hit on his eye guys. So, as a, I have a question. As an executive producer, what's your job as, a, as an EP? Like, what what do you do from start to finish? Uh, structuring finance, uh, figuring out if they're, you know, figuring out what the tax credit, uh, situation is, um, you know, those are the real main things. Um, uh, you know, obviously when there is a domestic deal to be done, that sort of, you know, that's not a normal executive producer thing, but that's one of the things that I do, mm -hmm. uh, oversee some, some really boring stuff like, you know, grind the bond company guys, grind the insurance guys, you know, and occasionally, yeah. right. Occasionally show up and, you know, solve a problem or be a nice person or be a heavy, mm -hmm. but you know, that's, you know, far fewer. And, you know, there are the, the actual producers do a lot more of that lifting than an EP does. Mm -hmm. Do you have to live in LA to be a producer, Jonathan? You don't have to, but I mean, it sort of helps. Mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, or, or let's, let me put it this way. Six months ago, I would have said you, you kind of have to, uh, cause you need to be able to get in your car and go see people. Now right. everything's over zoom. So, right. So that's what I wanted to get to next, you know, COVID-19 and production and your job now, you know, what's, when do you think they're going to start making movies again? I know they're making some movies now, but like, you know, what, what's, what's the game plan as far as, um, getting back to work? And you know, going back to the office, getting back to work, getting productions back going. Well, there's a couple of hitches to that. Uh, you know, most films that are financed independently have banks and bond companies, uh, and until there is an insurance product, uh, which doesn't exist today, uh, that insures against COVID, it's impossible to get a bond or a bank loan. Uh, so the only way to make a movie today is to self-insure, which means, you know, you put yourself on the hook for a whole lot of cash if there's an incident. Uh, so, and again, going back to, you know, one of the other tragic, tragic events of our lives, which I'm sure impacted you guys greatly, uh, going back to September 11th, yeah. it took a year for the government to come up with terrorism related insurance. Right. Uh, you know, so that, you know, and surprisingly, you know, looking at the world today, if I was to look back, I would think, well, how the hell did they ever do, you know, do a live sports event when they didn't have insurance against 
you know, terrorism. Right. And I guess, right. you know, not, not my business, but I guess they just did it and, you know, took every security measure they could and crossed their fingers and closed their eyes until the event was over. Right. So I mean, the answer to when we'll get back to production in full, I have no idea. Right. You know, there are smaller productions that are being done. We are looking at self-insuring on a few things. The bigger companies, the studios, the Netflixes, they have the ability to self-insure far greater than an independent company does. Mm -hmm. You know, most of the movies we make are a rounding error for a studio or for a Netflix. Mm -hmm. So for our business, what we've done in the short term is we've pivoted our business away from the bigger pre-sale movies and have looked to find the best available VOD content we could to serve our clients and just sort of keep the world moving. Do you think the, do you think the movie theater is dead? Do you think everything that no. Netflix and Hulu are the future of everything? No, I don't think the movie theaters are dead. I don't think the movies will ever die. And the best analogy I can give on that is, oh, I'm not sure if you guys are barbecue guys, but I Every can day. order Every day. I, I can order the finest steak in the world from Crowd Cow and go cook it on my DCS barbecue, but you bet your ass I'm going to Mastro's and drinking a martini and eating a steak the minute I can. <laughs> right. It's the God's honest truth, though. It's the truth. That's the absolute and, truth. And, you know, the same way that there is nothing like the experience of a restaurant, as a film fan, there is nothing like sitting there with a bucket of popcorn the size of your head watching the lights go down and watching one of these movies that just is transformative to you. You want to hear what has kept me up at night during COVID? You know, I've, I've, I've written, I want one of my stuff to be turned into a movie or whatever the case. And I'm, I was terrified. And listen, if it ended up on Netflix or Amazon, I would have been happy with it. But I always want to go to my own premiere, right? And I'm sitting here saying to myself, this is never going to happen. The, the movie theater, could it be dead? But you give me a lot of hope to know that the movies will come back. That yes, like I'm a movie guy big time movie guy and sitting in a theater with my son, my son and I are huge Marvel fans. We're huge star Wars fans. Like us too. Yeah. Yeah. Huge, huge. And you know, watching black Panther on your TV is amazing and it's great, but watching oh black Panther in a theater with a crowd um, is, is like nothing. It it's creates, it creates yeah. energy. It you creates know. energy. That's exactly right. No, but there's no question about that. I mean, father of the year that I am, I took my two at the time, five and a half year olds to go see Endgame. Uh, <laughs> it's one, completely one, appropriate. It's fine. It's, fine. One, it's Marvel. One of them tapped out right in the beginning of the third act when you know uh, when they came in, and he was like, "Daddy, I I, I want to leave," and I was like, "Okay." <laughs> we left and went and had you know burgers and milkshakes or whatever, and. I was like, I need to see the end of this movie. And yeah, yeah. my other son, you know, I have twin boys who are now, you know, six. And I said, do you want to go back and see it tomorrow? And he said, yeah, dad. So I found tickets at six in the morning, you know, oh my took my God. son. We rewatched the entire thing, had popcorn for breakfast. And that's a lifetime memory for us. Hundred. Yeah. I took, I took my son. I have a 12 year old boy. He's going to be 12. Um, in in like five days uh, well, nine days he's going to be 12 years old uh, i took him and two of his friends to the premiere of uh, infinity war in the city in new york the, oh, disney wow. was holding a special screening and his friends when he still talks to them they still talk about kevin smith was in the audience and they didn't know who kevin smith was and i'm like tell the story about kevin smith Mike. kevin smith real quick story about kevin smith and um you know, I, I don't talk to celebrities. We used to fly MGM Airlines. Do you remember MGM Grand yeah. Airlines? So, like, 
used we to have like your own pod. Johnny yeah. Depp would come by and like we just didn't care. Like we were more excited to talk to like a chef, right? Out of all, like, I was oh just God, happy. Emerald. Right. This was the, the the time the time period of this was when Home Alone just came out. Right. So yeah. they had Home Alone playing while it was still in theaters on the plane. And wow. And, that, was and like I was, I was, you know, just that was I remember, all I wanted to do. I remember, and I just watched Home Alone over and over and over again flew, on the flights to LA. We flew back from LA uh, with Bon Jovi, with the band. And I was with my friend, this kid, Jimmy, who I was with my best friend. My mom took him to LA. We spent all summer in LA because my parents were building the business there. And Bon Jovi saw there was like two young boys. Well, Eric was there. You know, Eric didn't care. He was eating and watching Home Alone. Right. But he's, they saw and they go, oh, do you guys want autographs? So I said, yeah, but you know, we, we got to get autographs for our whole class. So they literally sat and autographed on these MGM Grand napkins to Joey, love John Bon Jovi, to, to Ricky. And they're just naming off names of our whole class. And you know, we gave one to Jason. They didn't believe it, right? No one in my yeah, right. Not with Bon Jovi. I'm like, we really did. I'm like, Jimmy can uh, can attest to it. But um, fuck, I I digress. Well, and you, and you had to be young because I mean, I remember you know when uh, the first album came out. I was in seventh grade and I wore that tape out front ways to back. Hundred so Third fourth grade. Slippery when wet. Yep. Yes, Eric. What did I? What was I asking? Kevin James. Kevin. Oh, Kevin. Kevin. Um, Kevin, Smith. Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith. We're watching. Infinity War. And I got to tell you, it, it probably is the best, I think, in my opinion, one of the best Marvel movies. I mean, that was like the Empire Strikes Back of Marvel films. It was a cliffhanger at the end. But when Robert Downey Jr. is like spoiler, but I'm sure everyone on planet Earth has seen Infinity War. When he got stabbed by Thanos, Kevin Smith stood out of his chair in the middle of the theater and screamed. I don't want to scream that loud. No! Screaming. And the three boys, my son and his two friends, were hysterically cracking up. I'm like, do you realize that Kevin Smith just freaked out because he thought that Iron Man just died? Right. So th these memories that we have of movie theater, right? Then this is what it was all about. Um, taking my daughter to see Jungle Book. Uh, my mm -hmm. daughter and I, you know, I have a, she's going to be eight in October. Um, there's, there's nothing, nothing like it. And that's, I've always dreamed since I was a little boy, since I saw Goonies. Goonies was the movie that did it for me. And everything I write today is because of that movie. Um, that's uh, awesome. I, I actually I showed my, my, my six-year-old's Goonies uh, about a month ago. What did they think? They loved it. Back to the Future. Did you do Back to the Future yet? I haven't done that yet. Uh, what my son and I are re-watching again. Back to the Future is it's it's just different. It's just a whole other level. I mean, it just it hits you, you know? It's and it's I unbelievable. Mean, we have so much to look forward to with this. I mean, I can't wait to start showing them the John Hughes movies. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, Home Alone is a staple in our house now, right? And yeah. like, there's Breakfast Club. There's you know, sixteen candles. But what? What? Are, um, are you guys are Star Wars guys? Yeah. Did you do all nine? Or you yeah. doing? You did all nine. No, yeah. we've done all nine. We've done yeah. the Mandalorian. I've got a life size stormtrooper oh. in my house. Do you really? Yeah. So when are you gonna? So when are you going to make your Star Wars? Is that on your bucket list to say, okay, I'm ready to make a, a space your and what it could be, you know, what kind of space opera is? But do you want to ever go that big? Did you, did you do it already? already? Right. Uh, haven't done it. Have no plans to do it. Uh, really? Yeah. Those are movies that you know. Those are movies that these giant corporations make. They're, these are not, they're not independent movies. It's not what we're built to do. It's not what our clients are built to release. You know, mm -hmm. in the history of independent film, Lord of the Rings, which was huge, uh, the Twilight franchise, which was huge and Hunger Games, that's, those were as big a swings as you could take 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that was going back some 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. In today's world, the business is so fragmented that, you know, and there is so much competition for time that, you know, making these $200 million plus movies on an independent level just isn't practical from a financial standpoint. I would far, far rather and more realistically have my hand in a taxi driver type of movie. Right. Uh, which, I, you know, we didn't quite, you know, I don't think you put taxi driver and wicked and extremely wicked in the same sentence, but you put it in the same paragraph, or, you know, certainly in the same chapter. Right. Uh, That's incredible. That's inc- what, um, so you, ha- you weren't with heart locker when they won the Oscar, right? Like you didn't no. you weren't with uh, voltage. Okay. No. Do you ever want to win an Oscar? I'd love to. You would. Yeah. Sure. Read poker guys. No, I'm, just kidding. <laughs> I'm teasing. I always, you know, I mean, do you believe in manifesting? Do you believe in like, you know, kind of putting it out there and letting the universe take it from there? Because that's what oh, a thousand percent. That's how every film is made. Every film is made by it starts with one person and it builds into a small group of people saying we're going to push this fucking rock up a hill and we don't care what's in front of us. And that every movie that gets made is a miracle. It's amazing. That's amazing. Um, Who are yeah. your mentors? As yeah. far as growing up, you know, like, did you, did, are you like a Tony Robbins guy or a law of attraction person? Do you, you know, are there any books that helped you along the way or is people that you worked with, you know, who has helped you along the way? Well, got- book, book wise, you know, I, I think I took my mother's copy of the Godfather when I was 12 years old and read that. And that was pretty impactful. Yep. Right. Uh, you know, career wise, I've been fortunate to be around a lot of really smart people who have taught me a lot of things. You know, John Hyde, who was my first boss, taught me a ton. Jim Robinson taught me more than I could ever, rem- you know, remember. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was actually lucky enough to, you know, come back as an adult and sell All Eyes on Me, the Tupac Shakur movie wow. that Jim and David made for Jim. So, you know, it was a surreal experience to be sitting in his office and negotiate with this guy who used to make me tremble in my boots and still sort of does. I have a question. You, you know, you have a 22 year old kid right now and wants to do what you're doing. Is it possible if they're starting in 2020? Doing it the way that I did it. Well, it won't look the way it looks, you know, 20, you know, 24 years from now, he won't be 46 years old or her won't be 46 years old sitting here doing this the way that I do. I think there are an amazing number of opportunities to create content and license content. And, you know, the way that we're doing it changes every day. And whether it's, you know, taking advantage of YouTube, like all these kids are doing now or Tubi or TikTok, you know, so the content creation game will never go away. The content distribution game and the content licensing game continues to evolve, you know, on a daily basis. When we're seeing are, that. Hang go, on, go we're, see, yeah. we're seeing that firsthand now when we started the podcast, and you know, especially posting content on LinkedIn and stuff like that. The minute we started uh, having our own platform, it's been instrumental to our business success. And, sure. you know, we were never, we, we, we could never quite figure out how to create content for our business. And then we eventually figured it out. And um, it's, it's been amazing to, you know, like what you said, the content game has changed. And, you know, we have a podcast and um, suddenly we're able to have a platform. And that's for the first time in history. No, that's really been hard. 
to do. That's what, that's what the technology has done. The technology has broken down the walls. Right. You know, it used to be you could see a movie by going to a theater or by going to Blockbuster or watching it on cable. And, right. you know, maybe free television if they were airing them. And that was it. That's my that's my question to you. And this is more of like a dream of mine again. When you see I Feel Pretty on TV and you see your name on television, does it do something to you? Does it do you do you, do you hey, honey, look, you know, <laughs> look like because like I know how I would feel at this point in my life to say screenplay by Michael Oaken or based on the book by Michael Oaken. I know how I would feel seeing that on the big screen. Does it strike you? Do, or do you, do, do you not even give a shit? Like business this point? as usual. Yeah. It's like business as usual. Well, my wife likes it more than I do. And really? I don't, I, I'm, I'm always happy to see it and I'm proud of, you know, the stuff that we've done, but there's a big difference between serving the role that I serve on a movie and being a screenwriter. You know, when you, when you write a script and the movie goes on to get produced, you live with that movie from the first day to the last day and every day in between and every day after. Right. For, for me, I read a script, you know, we figure out what the financing is. They go away and they make it. I should, I, I maybe show up to set. I maybe don't depending on, you know, where I am in the world and what's happening. Right. You know, then the movie comes in and we watch a couple cuts and, you know, I give some notes that are sometimes decent and sometimes people say, get out of here, you know, business guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, we deliver the movie to our partners and we help them release it in the best we can. And we're on to the next. Do you feel, um, uh, do you let artists, I don't know if I can even say this the right way. Do you, do you feel that you have to have your hand in the movie? Like, uh, for, I feel pretty, did you have to give notes saying reworked act two? you know, make the fun and games longer? Like, do you, are you, um, are you controlling part of the what, part yeah, of the creative like, process? Yeah. Are you, do you feel you're part of it or do you let the people create? I am, I am not part of it. I am, I have a very, 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 very small part. There are, you know, our in-house producers have a lot more, mm-hmm. uh, have a lot more impact on that. You know, it's just not what I do. It's not, you know, uh, you know, you, you don't go to the guy who makes pizzas and ask him about cookies. Right. Right. You know. right. That's incredible. I think with that, I, we can, I, this uh, was, I know Michael would keep going, but you, you know, kidding me? I could Jonathan, talk. Jonathan's got to get back to work. So. I know. I know. Jonathan, thank you. If you want to tell the audience, if you know, if you want to reveal your information, you can, or if, if you're on any social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Twitter, Insta. Uh, I know you're on LinkedIn because you made a, a lot. You commented on my seventies movies post, I think about a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not particularly active on social media. Mm. So. Well, well, no one reach out to Jonathan because he's all mine. And Jonathan's going to take all my stuff. So, you know, Jonathan and Michael Oaken are going to be, uh, I got to tell you, I'm just putting out to the universe now, you know, Eric and I always felt that we wanted to make our own studio, right? We always wanted to make our own production company. And well, I got the name for it. Joking Productions. Joking, right? Joking Productions. I'm sure everyone will take us very seriously. We actually came up with one. We always wanted to call it Original Asteroid. I don't know why, but we always like random Original Asteroid, uh, you know, Original Asteroid Films. And you know, it just I, voltage is like one of the coolest names ever. Voltage and legendary, no joke, are like the coolest names for like independent studios. Well, voltage came because Dean Devlin's company was called Electric Entertainment. Oh my God! Okay, and that, that's where there voltage came from. That's unbelievable. 
That's unbelievable. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to join you. This has been so fun. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Hang on one second. We're going to log off. Guys, like, subscribe, leave comments down below, and um, we'll see you all next time. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Thanks, Jonathan.